HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Mary Izet. From Fomentabody. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Today's program has been brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Off-site with Adam Dooley, the chef behind San Francisco Bar's Monk's Kettle and the Abbott's Cellar. Born and raised in Kansas City, um, grew, grew up cooking. Um, and that that's, yeah, I, it was funny, it was still, I don't consider myself to be too uh, that old, but when I was going through everything and decided I wanted to cook, it was still early, early enough on where the guidance counselors at my high school pulled my parents in and said so we understand adam wants to cook we think it's a waste of his education yeah do you remember having culinary courses in middle school and high school what were they called home ec i remember home ec and i remember like learning how to sew and iron and i think make rice krispie treats yeah so do you think it was thought of as a domesticated thing and Uh-oh. it wasn't it wasn't a job oh no it wasn't a job yeah it was a it was a waste of my education apparently yeah so i mean okay kansas city tell me about the town a little bit and uh, you know, being on the border and what it was like living there. Um, and it was, you know, as far as for growing up in a, in a food town, you know, it wasn't as well known for what it had, but with what it had inside it, the people who cooked in the restaurants there and the restaurants that I went to growing up, everybody cared about it. And it was a very small community of chefs, producers, farms um, that, that did that. And you had that transfer over to the grocery stores. I mean, I remember being able to walk three blocks away from my house when I was... 10 to 16 years old and you go into the market and it's what people are looking for to push into Whole Foods now. Uh, so it was, it was definitely a great experience as far as for access to like learning about ingredients and learning about food and people just cooked simply. What did your family cook? Um, that's where I started cooking a lot. Um, my, my mom was a, a 
psychologist and so I would grow I would she would have evening sessions a lot and so I started getting really interested in cooking and so I was able to, to go to the store with her and kind of be like oh I want to roast a chicken or one year for Christmas I asked for a pasta machine and I started making dried pasta and hanging it on the, the closed drying racks in the <laughs> kitchen. So what, what is your family's background heritage? Um, Irish and Italian. Um, Irish on my mom's side, Italian on my dad's side. So what were the Irish and Italian food influences in your household? Um, tomatoes, canning, um, pastas, sausages. Um, Irish influences were mostly more on the family side of, you know, gathering around a table or having a large meal. Um, the food influence, I think, came more from Italian than it did from Irish, but every now and then, would you know, there'd be some, some Irish influence in there. Yeah. Did you see that in restaurants in Kansas City, the Irish, the Italian, or was there? Oh, absolutely. But, yeah. Yeah. And what were the dishes that were served? Uh, I mean, just your huge, you know, the, the Kansas City Italian style was definitely baked tomato sauces, heavy pastas. Yeah. Um, massive portions, lots of people around the table. You start with a salad, you might end with a salad. <laughs> All the roughage you can get. Yeah. You know, and I, I said to you, the only thing I really knew about Kansas City was maybe fried chicken. I know there is a barbecue style and sauce. There is. Uh, what is that? It's it's tomato based, oddly. Yeah. Um, and it's it's thicker. Um, you know, and it's a lot more beef than it is pork. Um, burnt ends are probably a Kansas City staple, mm-hmm. uh, which you know everybody else is like, "What? You eat the burnt? End? You're like, yes, and dredged in sauce, and um, you know that's uh, brings in a lot of smoke into play of what you see transfer into that and comfort and dishes there. But yeah, definitely the fried chicken, the barbecue, um, are, you know, and then kind of the other thing that's in there too is apples. There's apple orchards all around Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember going to cider presses and getting hot cider donuts and picking apples uh, the entire time growing up. Uh, restaurants in Kansas City, because we'll, we'll talk about where you cooked a little bit later, but there's the American. There is. Were there any, like, famous barbecue places, famous diners, famous, you know, white tablecloth restaurants there? Um, there were a few. Um, the American definitely stood out for the longest, um, being the, the kind of uh, hallmark, with pun intended, since it's operated by the hallmark company there. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, other uh, barbecue gates, Arthur Bryant's... Um, are kind of the big classic rival that's in there. And then um, Jack Stack kind of modernized it into a more formal dining experience. You know, Gates, you take someone in from out of town, you've literally got people from the behind the counter yelling at the person 15 back in the line, hi, may I help you? And if you don't know what you want, they skip you. Yeah. Well, I haven't been there. Tell me what to do when I get there and how to order correctly. You you look at the menu outside before you go in, and you know what you want, and you don't you don't say hi, you don't say how are you, you just one that when someone snaps at you, you just say, I want beef on bun, beef on white bread, side of fries, side of sweet potato, and point to your drink, and then you just you shut up and you pay. Yeah, so that that's almost like a tick now for you, like it's automatic when yeah. you walk in there, you can order that sandwich. You can order it, and you just go, and then yeah, and you move quietly through it. Otherwise, you feel way out of place. Yeah, let's go back to school. This instance where your guidance counselor's like. What the fuck are you doing with your life? Yeah. What were you doing with your life? Was there school in sight? Did you go to culinary afterwards? Um, I did. You know, it was... It, uh, initially, like, I started working in restaurants. You know, classic story of I was washing dishes when I was 14. 
for, you know, whatever it was allowed. I think it was 16 hours a week or something. And then when I turned 15, it went up to whatever hours. And then when I turned 16, I worked as much as I could. And literally, it was the, the, the guy on the line didn't show up for a Saturday or a Sunday lunch shift. And I started working on the line. That was, that was literally how that happened. Um, and then I just loved doing it. I loved the people I was working with. I loved the culture. And, you know, when it came time to look at, like, colleges, I was like, I don't I want to do this. Yeah. So did you actually go to school or I did, did you just work? I did. I went to the CIA up in New York. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was kind of a, a joint decision in the mid, you know, this is like in 94, 95, um, when it was like, okay, cooking wasn't, you know, Food Network wasn't out yet. You know, the, all of the blogs and everything that exists right now about culinary, there were no, there was no Top Chef, there was no... Gordon Ramsay, there's nothing to champion what chefs were doing except for just a very few small things. You know, James Beard Foundation was just getting a lot, starting to get a lot of recognition mm-hmm. in, in the in the early and mid '90s. They were kind of the ones that pushed forward a lot of championing the chefs, and that's what everybody kind of saw. So, went to culinary school to one. I'm glad I did it, but also it was like a, a family decision of like, if you're not going to go to college, at least do this. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the idea of media kind of pushing you forwards because there wasn't that public eye of what a chef does and it wasn't celebrated in the same fashion. What made you want to go there? I mean, were there media outlets? Were there television shows that you watched? Books that you read? Um, the the Galloping Gourmet. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like all these things make you just sound old. Um, Julie Child, uh, Jacques Pepin. Um, that's, that's the food that was on TV. Yeah, you know, um, and you know, I can remember like sometimes during the seasons, the holiday seasons and stuff like that, like the old Today Show or Tom Brokaw would would sometimes do things, but it was never anything that like influenced you to actually want to do something. You were just like, oh my god, they just did the stupidest turkey thing on yeah on TV, and you look back and think, and that was kind of crazy. Um, but th- those are the food ones that I remember. And I think it was also books. Um, you know that w- there was a. Um, there were several bookstores that were actually around where my mom's office was, and a lot of times after school, I'd, I'd walk over and I'd, I'd just read cookbooks and flip through cookbooks. Yeah, um, and you know, flipping through like the the classic James Beard ones of American Cookery, and um, honestly, at that point in time as well too, Better Homes and Gardens, um, and you know. Uh, I think at that point in time as well, too, you could access a couple of, like, the CIA's, like, I think the first or second edition of the new professional show. Yeah. Which is still a great book. Oh, it is. I Absolutely. Mean, I, I don't update it every year because there's very small variables, but talk about going to the CIA and how important having that kind of foundation of technique and understanding of food is before you jump into the industry. I think, you know, one of the biggest things that culinary school gave me uh, is, is identifying kind of the groups. You know, got there and was immediately put into a group of people that, you know, no one knew anyone. And, and you're in a block of 26 to 90 students, and, you know, your group is the small 26. But you immediately identify why everyone's there and what they want to do. And you, and you have your branches that still exist today of, like, people want to go into hotels and resorts and make a lot of money. People want to go work at the casinos or whatnot like that. People want to go into research and development. And then you have the small segment of, of people who want to just dive into it, cook, find their voice in, you know, whatever it is for the dining, create relationships and learn about the food. And then you truly do have the people who are just lost. Yeah, yeah. And so which one were you? I, I, I was part of the small group that, you know, like on we that, that on weekends we would take the train into New York City and set up stages. Yeah. You know, and like, and 
I you know look back on it now and laugh of like I remember missing a, the two the two a.m. train back up and figuring out how to stay in New York City after just doing a stage at Oceana and completely just getting like to the point where you almost cried. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but that, that's that's an amazing aspect of ambition too. That you're willing to do anything to, to acquire something. You don't know what that acquisition is yet, but to try to further yourself. Um, in culinary school, did you feel like you were furthering your education, or was it these stages, these experiences that were doing more for you? I think it was all of it. The education was great. You know, I think the biggest thing with culinary school is you get out of it what you put into it. And that's where a lot of people are criticizing culinary school right now is because, yeah, there's more culinary schools now. There's more people going to culinary schools. They're graduating classes faster. So this pool, you know, just by percentages of people who don't know what they're doing, didn't pay attention, barely got through, got by, is massive. And a lot of them still don't know what they want to do. Yeah. We'll talk about the dilution of staffing later (laughs) because that seems to be a, a... pandemic across the country right now absolutely um especially in these metropolises you know san francisco new york uh. but you know yeah for me i got out of it what i put into it and i was i i still remember and for a brief while after graduating kept in contact with chefs uh that were instructors there they had phenomenal contacts if you just like started talking to them all of the instructors there you know they 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 do well at the teaching, but then they also all do all these insane side projects. Mm-hmm. You know, almost any almost all of them either operate a catering business on the side, or consult somewhere, or cater weddings, or write books, and they're always looking for people to help them. Yeah, I kind of like talking about that Hydra Head idea. You know that you're not just doing one thing. Yes. Yeah. Now now having two restaurants, which you operate, you know you're not just a cook on the line. You know you're not just a manager. You know you're not just a, you know, plumber. If anything happens, HVAC. Yeah. So you have to have all these skills and have to have everything going on once. Absolutely. Let's talk about work. So after school. Um, After school, um, ended up um, at the American in Kansas City with Michael and Debbie. Um, Talk about who are Michael and Debbie. So Michael Smith and Debbie Gold um, at the time were the uh, co-executive chefs of the American restaurant in Kansas City. Um, They both came from uh, a a huge pedigree of, you know, uh, they had met while working for Charlie Trotter. um, And uh, then they were in Chicago for a brief time absolutely completely blanking on where Michael worked. I remember it was Gordon was the chef there and it was just, you know, the stories he had from there and how they how it went into how they managed the kitchen. Um, and so started working there with them uh, and, and learning, you know, I mean, that that kind of threw it right up there into going into the, the dining aspect of it. So stayed there for a while and then growing up, I'd spent all summers and winters, we would always go out to Colorado. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of knew I didn't want to, well, I really knew I didn't want to live in Kansas City, you know, at that point in time. I was like, you know, I think as most people are, I'm not going to go back and live where I grew up. Yeah. Uh, So after working for them, I made the jump to Aspen, Colorado, uh, and ended up uh, working, uh, landing a job at at the Caribou Club, uh, right when Miles Angelo from Arizona 206 in New York had just moved out from New York to Aspen to take over. And that was like flashback to New York of just, you know, of where Miles came up with and and how he was just go, 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 go. And it was an Aspen in peak winter season. That was just, 
that, that was an experience in, a, in and of itself. Yeah, that's a distinctly different environment than Kansas City. But I don't want to lose sight of the American. Okay. Um, just because how you work through a kitchen is very important. We were talking about knowing all the parts. Yeah. What was your first position in the American? First position was pantry, just like anybody who starts off when they're out of culinary school and young, and, and you have to work your way on pantry, you know. Um, at the American at that point in time, it was an interpretation of a Caesar salad. It was, uh, you know, um, a crawfish risotto with uh, edible gold leaf on it. Um, <laughs> I was definitely dating things here. Um, but it's funny you remember all these specific things. Like, yeah. I remember having to make three different olive tapenades for the Caesar salad just so that Caesar salad could be different than a Caesar salad. Yeah. Um, working um, with them, with uh, that and then moving into hot appetizer station uh, and then hot appetizer station moved into grill and then grill moved into saute. Yeah. Um, and then um, also doing events there. They did a lot of dinners um, and some really cool ones. You know, they, they were one of the first ones to start participating in the hosting the out-of-house James Beard dinners. Um, and they still do today. They yeah. still, Yeah, they still do today. Like, I remember the first one we did there, I was just blown away by watching Susser Lee, Michael Genoir, uh, Terry Rotaro, um, Craig Shelton. All these guys came in and did this huge dinner. And you're just, like, standing there and you're like, okay. So this is, if I'm going to be in Kansas City, this is where to be. Yeah. So, I mean, having a hub like that, because people think that you have to go to a city to, to not just experience food, but meet people, network. That that was... That oh, was that good. was massive networking. Yeah, yeah. And, and doing that. And then, you know, they did the wine dinners as well, too. And oddly, I remember it was really funny. Because um, having grown up there, I remember talking with John McDonald, who's the founder of Boulevard Brewing. I remember doing a Boulevard beer dinner at the American. And it was before beer dinners became a huge thing. And it was an absolute circus to be polite because there were no there's no way to tap the beer so they brought the kegs in they sunk them in 55 gallon trash cans they buried them on ice but then the kegs got too cold so they were foamy so they had people hand, and they were all hand pumps yeah you know none of them were hooked up to co2 so you had like six back waiters trying to hand pump it and fill pitchers meantime this seven course beer dinner is going out that was but it was definitely a learning experience. Well, I think this is the perfect point to diverge, but realize you were on parallel paths. And let's talk about beer. <laughs> okay. Do you remember your first beer? Um, I do, actually. And it's really, you know, um, it's kind of funny. Um, because if you fast forward to now, I, it's definitely not my favorite style. But my very first beer was uh, Boulevard Wheat. Yeah. First beer, not like a Budweiser, not, not a like a no. It just went Boulevard. Wheat. That was the first beer. Yeah. What, why, what? What age were you? Did you just forget to drink as a youth? Uh, no, I mean that. That was you know, th- that was honestly like when I was like thirteen, maybe fourteen tops. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's and it's because that's what my mom had in the fridge at home. <laughs> so, did you like it? Did you did you cringe? You know, I don't remember if I cringe or if I didn't like it. I remember that uh, that I was convinced that I had to finish the fir- the bottle, yeah. And then I had to wa- then I had to walk over to the store and get rid of the bottle there because I couldn't leave the bottle at home. Yeah, but there was a bottle missing, and yeah, but there there was a bottle missing, and luckily no one noticed that there was a bottle missing. Yeah, well, I'm going to send this to your mother. 
send this it's, to your family. It's funny. I, well, it's you, you kind of remember those things as you go as you go across of, of like that, and then fast forward to a couple of years later, being on the East Coast at some family's house, and we we found we found some beer in the pantry there too. And all I remember is there was a giant Labrador on the label. Yeah, and it was a it was the first bomber I ever had. I think I was sixteen when that happened. Yeah, took that one out to the woods. <laughs> Keg stands, looses. I mean, did any of the. Um non-craft beer experience happened to you? Oddly it did and it happened in culinary school that's the funny part yeah um, you know, yeah, and uh, sad to say that at that point in time, party balls still existed. Yeah, <laughs> um, explain what a party ball is because I, I've been lucky enough to see it, but I, again, they don't exist anymore, and I'm very sad. Um, it's basically like a giant gerbil ball filled with beer. <laughs> I, I don't know whoever concepted it, but I loved it. It was so so much. It, it was the most portable, most entertaining way to have. Yeah. yeah. And you can see the beer in it. Yeah. I think that's what captivated everyone. You put it on the table and you're all like, yeah. Yeah. I've been wanting to make a party bladder, kind of like, you know, a camel pack. <laughs> but then you have one specific person walk around with it the whole night pouring the beer. So yeah. That'd be the very motivation. Yeah. Sorry, you want the cranberry Sure. Yeah, that, that's the, that'd be the motivation to pour that out if you had that on your back, if you started with five <laughs> gallons of beer on your back. Yeah, exactly. You'd be like, no, you're drinking. Yep, yep. You're the one carrying around the party bladder tonight. Um, but yeah, no, I, that, those memories absolutely exist from from New York and upstate New York, and yeah, um, not necessarily in Aspen or getting back into Kansas City, but um, but that's a weird thing that you say. It was at the Culinary Institute I know, that right? you had shitty beer. Yeah, I mean, and now you're you're in a place in your life where you can't picture having shitty beer with good food. I mean, maybe, maybe you can, maybe yeah. tacos and fish and stuff like that. <laughs> but that that wasn't there wasn't a correlation there. And oh, why no. do you think that was? I think it was the the classification that that everyone put beer into, um, and you know it, it didn't have a place at the table at that point in time. Um, in in very small percentages, it, it did, but for the most part it was looked down upon and you know i remember going into restaurants and ordering a beer and people judged you you could see the bartender judging you you could see your server judging you um you know and maybe it was a judging of great i just sold a three dollar beer instead of a whatever cocktail or wine but you could you could kind of see that and um you know the large mass production you know of of what was happening with a lot of what is big beer out there um even though, by and large, some of the stuff that they're producing was was legitimate, it definitely watered down the whole market for what everyone else was. And there was a business angle to it at that point in time as well, too, where much like now, if you're, you're looking at people who want to break into opening a restaurant or doing that, and there's connections that, that need to be made or how you get your success, and a lot of that was blocked by a lot of big beer. Mm-hmm. Big beer, distribution, tier yeah, system. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of perfect that New Career took you to Aspen. <laughs> and, you know, Colorado as a state uh, was so ahead of the curve when it came to craft brewing. What were the beers and the beer scene like there? So <clears throat> that was the first one where there was, you know, there was a brew pub in, in Aspen at that point in time. Um, and uh, which is, uh, and that was those Flying Dog at the time, uh, which is then was in Denver as well too, and then now in in Maryland, um, and 
but for there, it was a little bit more on the imported side as well, too. You know, in Aspen, you start to see all of these things of, you know, Guinness had its huge run during Apres Ski um, and, you know, being able to keep people warm. And then you had all these box coming out and darker beers and roastier beers. And all of a sudden you start to see imports coming in because there's a lot of tourism. So you start to learn about this culture that's over in Europe and, and the, you know, what's being brewed in, in Belgium and Germany. And uh, in some cases, Italy could make over a little bit. And you're like, oh, wow. And then you start to see it transfer into starting to trickle in into American brewers, mm-hmm. uh, and it just you started to see it blossom. And the the going to the Front Range of Denver, you know, was was great. I think that's one of the things. It's funny after Aspen, my next move from there was going to Portland, Oregon. Yeah, um, which then even expanded it further uh, before. And then after Portland, Oregon, like Oregon, I came back to Colorado. Caribou Club. Yeah, cooking there. Did you see? Uh, new ingredients, new techniques, oh, yeah. new ideas. What were oh, they? Yeah. I mean, new ingredients, yes, because the sky was the limit. You know, first time I ever saw a five-pound tin of caviar. Um, first time ever served, you know, uh, a 72-ounce cut of a 90-day dried steak to one person. <laughs> um, first time that, you you know, white truffles, um, and, like, the true white truffle, not, like, you know, peelings or shavings or truffle oil, like literally watching tableside white truffle shaving um and then also especially getting back to like what miles did he had a huge influence of southwestern in him uh and so learning how to integrate peppers and heat into cooking and still getting into that fine dining level and sauces um he had a huge love for working with fish in a lot of it in a raw sense and how to manipulate the flavors with that with uh, oils uh, and um, you know accompaniments for that and sauces um, and you know it's the I think my one of the things that I always remember a lot from there is we did an event um, I can't remember what it was for I want to say it was, it was around Aspen Food and Wine but I could be wrong uh, where there were a hundred lobsters brought in, and the way Miles wanted to cook the lobsters was not to boil them and kill them while they were alive, flip them over on their back, take a giant cleaver and cut them in half, and then put them on the grill to yeah. to order. Yeah, that was a very scarring night on the grill, <laughs> but eye opening at the same. But eye opening because yeah. because he was right, it completely changed the 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 lobster. What did you drink after shift? <laughs> um. Bourbon's an option. Um, Beer-wise, is an option. I generally go for light and refreshing. Um, you know, some something that's easy, crisp, clean. Um, but uh, if I go bourbon, it's usually a Manhattan on the rocks. Yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of prove a little bit of a point. It's like those that work at wineries or in, in the vineyard often go for beer after work yeah. um, because it satiates in a different way. Oh, absolutely. But there are beers that don't. they're they're a bit large format they're sour I mean they're they're such a breath of beers and I think for such a long time in the US beer was thought of as this one thing this this, not singular but had this function to it yeah in in Colorado at Caribou were there beer pairings where was there a beer list or there wasn't necessarily a beer list there were beer bottles and there was like maybe three to five tap handles that I can remember um, beer in Aspen when I was there was more of an apres ski item, mm-hmm. you know. So between three and six, it was okay to drink beer. Mm-hmm. And then once you hit six o'clock, <clears throat> it was cocktail and wine time. Yeah. And then beer would make its resurgence a little bit later, 
uh, especially at the Caribou Club, because during peak seasons, you know, once the first part of the dining room cleared out, they actually turned that into a dance floor. All of a sudden, this, like, crystal ball comes out, and you're like, okay, wow, there's, like, flashing lights, and we just put out this, like, really nice dinner, and now people are like, all right, understood. So, um, but it was definitely, you know, there were, there was a little bit more um, evolution with it as it started to happen there, and I think I left a little bit before it, it really started to take off. Um, but, yeah, people getting growlers at the brew pub to go there was definitely a, 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 an experience to see there and then seeing all the styles that they were doing and then watching how people interacted with it. But, yeah, Apri Ski was where it was at. From 3 to 6, everyone was drinking beer. Portland, when did people drink and what did people drink? Um, all day and every day. <laughs> Um, and that was that was really ex- IPA exposure. That was hop exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, from the tiny McMenamins who are now huge that had pubs all over the place to um, Laurelwood to um, you know, uh, at that point in time, um, Henry Weinhardt's was still there before that got bought out by Pabst. Um, and then you had Full Sail, Rogue, um, Deschutes all just kind of around in the area um and it was it was steam you know pale ales amber lagers uh porters stouts and then really pops yeah but where did you work where did you go oh, yeah, yeah. In, <laughs> I, i'm glad you were talking about beer yeah. first because, get back off yeah. that um i worked at wildwood uh with cory schreiber uh which was just in the pacific northwest there and this was at a time when wildwood was just coming out you know at that point in time in Portland, you had Corey, you had Greg Higgins, um, you had, uh, this is when Vitaly Paley was just starting uh, with Paley's Place, uh, and you had Philippe Below over at the Heathman, and that was kind of your your working of the, those types of restaurants that were in Portland. So, where was your head? Was it in cooking, or was it starting to float over to beer? It was in cooking. Yeah. It was massively in cooking. Uh, it was in cooking, and, like, Portland was, you know, going over to Soviet Island for the first time and seeing the farm that was there and going out to, uh, you know, there was a, another sous chef there that I, that I worked with there that we would, you know, this is when you're young and you don't necessarily need the sleep that you need now. Uh, you could finish a shift, get in the car, drive to the coast just in time to throw some floodlights into a cove and go fishing for rockfish, yeah. you know, and um, go out to the, to the oyster and the mussel ba- beds. And it was massively in, in food. Yeah. And just like the, 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 that was the first place where I remember the truck pulling up to the back of the restaurant cash exchanging hands for uh, a whole lamb a whole pig or a hind quarter of cow and that was the first restaurant i worked in where we actually you know part of your prep was possibly the bandsaw yeah <laughs> but again all that beer there the the hop exposure ipas um how did that influence your palate um <clears throat> at first it was just in, intriguing because it was definitely more uh more hops than I had ever had previously really you know even at Colorado at that point in time was more on a scale of what I'd been exposed to uh, as far as what was around on the east coast as well too and so this was just more intense the carbonation was higher the malt bill was lower and the hops were higher and I was like okay this is new Um, and so you know that that definitely um, changed a, a lot of things there as far as like starting to play around with food things and like you know one of the great things about wildwood was you had so many options to learn how to cook because in, in addition to your regular saute and uh you know just using a regular oven Corey had a deck oven in the back uh there was a tandoori oven which we roasted all the meats in which i still have scars on my arm from um 
and then there was a, a wood burning oven as well and there was also just a regular grill so like all of a sudden you have all of these ways to cook proteins to cook vegetables and figure out the different reactions they have and then that's where it started to click of we started doing you know there's lots of great wines there and obviously the pinots that are there and you start to do a lot of those winery dinners and especially during like crush week and when that's happening and you start to see these things but then you start to work with a couple beer dinners and all of a sudden you're like wow this is completely different, and the reaction is completely different if I do this in the tandoori oven or the wood oven, or if I do it on the grill or if I saute it, and it's, and it, they both evoke different reactions. And that's where that whole exploration kind of started happening. Then what was your first food and beer pairing? That was, that, that was the epiphany. Um, I think the first food and beer pairing epiphany for me, in, in, in all honesty, moves forward a little bit later when I... I got back to, after Portland, I got back to Colorado, and I was doing an event in Vail. Uh, it was the uh, the Taste of Vail, uh, on top of Vail Mountain, and it was in the middle of winter. Uh, but they wanted to do this ma- event on top of the mountain. They built this huge snow castle. There was 50-some-odd restaurants, a bunch of wineries, um, and people would just come in and, and walk around and do this giant tasting. And It was probably one of the biggest pain-in-the-ass things I've ever done, too, because you had to meet your load-in time, load everything up, uh, the gondola, get up the gondola, set up, and then also you're working on snow and in snow and around snow. Um, and everybody up there just got crushed, like every restaurant that was up there every one i mean it was the event went off really well but again why wouldn't you want to eat and drink at twelve thousand feet yeah uh so at the about three quarters of the way through I'm, i remember just thinking like all i want right now is a beer and we were doing a venison dish um and so they, there was a couple wineries around that had that had recommended uh, us to be paired with their wines or anything like that and all of a sudden i had this steam engine amber lager with it and i was like oh this is way better than your wine with it <laughs> Uh, and that that ended up kind of snowballing everything into all right this this works and there's one brewery here at this event and there's 50 some odd wineries how can this change so how did you make a change that same brewery that i that, that i'd met up up on the mountain um which was out of durango colorado uh we ended up doing a series of three beer dinners um that were in Vail and uh basically were the the local media that was there in Vail you know they were all about supporting what was going on in the town and in the community and again getting it out to people who were coming into town because you know that was the that was the goal in Vail is you want people out of their hotel rooms you want people out of their rented houses you want them making the town feel alive uh so and then there was also just a start, uh, uh, an interest in local people there as well, too. Chefs, restaurants, but then also just the locals that lived there that were like, oh, yeah, I drink beer. And like all of a sudden they start coming out to this. And so then it morphed into, well, we've got these tap handles in the lounge, so let's put the beer on tap and do like a little mingling session before we do the dinner. And that way people who don't want to come to the dinner can just kind of come and hang out and put a few snacks out there. And all of a sudden you see this community start talking uh, and it's and it and that's really what also tricked it off there too is it, it was a community that was talking. It's one of the key things I remember about doing wine dinners the whole time, dating back to the American. I can't remember a winemaker ever telling me how they made the wine, but I can remember every single brewer flat out saying, "Yeah, this is how I did this, or I tried this, or I used this, or I got this from this person," and that switched in my head too of like, that's a community 
that that wants to share and wants to do this not saying that they don't but that's definitely something they even see out here now to this day of you know you drive through napa and everybody's looking over the fence to see when someone else is going to pick and then all of a sudden crush explodes yeah you know it's not saying that it's secretive in form but it definitely has its uh cloak and dagger you know kind of like mysterious methods about it whereas in brewing almost even still to this day uh with few exceptions anybody will tell you anything and share like mm-hmm. you got to try this this is check this guy out So you like good beer. Whether you're a craft beer pro or just had your first sip of an IPA, GreatBrewers.com is your number one beer resource on the internet. GreatBrewers.com bridges the gap between the world's great brewers and the consumers who enjoy their products. With so much information and misinformation out there, GreatBrewers.com focuses on education and leaves no stone unturned. Take the Great Beer Test on their website and browse through an extensive product catalog. Download their mobile beer cloud app, which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit greatbrewers.com today. those first beers you shared with the community what what was on tap that night um so tap up there that night was a brewery called steamworks out of durango and it was a a kolsch a steam engine lager and a stout called backside stout um those were and those were the those were the first three beers that, that were there and then from there that's also what pushed to having a lot more local beers on tap and all of a sudden now specifically where i was at and then around town you see this local footprint or the colorado footprint come out more and all of a sudden this is when like breckenridge great divide um start all of a sudden coming into play massively more you see them around more and now you're seeing less of stella less of guinness less of blue moon um, and you're seeing more of all of these things pop up, and all of a sudden, you know, with, with relation to a lot of them, they have a, some skier references in their names or their titles. Yeah. You know, uh, Wipeout IPA is a different name in Colorado than it does in California. Yeah. You know, um, let's talk about locality for a second, because even though you're working with these local beers, you talked about this progression of how these great national brewers were using styles that kind of based after these imports that you were uh, yeah. priorly drinking. And, you know, that's the progression of cooking and food as well. We're, we're French technique, and now we're exploring Asia, and, you know, uh, yeah. you know. How did that influence your food, seeing that there was a progression amongst brewing as well? Did you try to pair it with the dishes that were the style of the beer, or were you cooking American it feels like a very complex question, but there just seem to be so many paths happening at the same time. Was there a convergence? There was. I mean, there was a lot of confusion because there was there were a couple times. Like I remember, I think the first and foremost thing that, that, that beer started helping me with was was becoming simpler in cooking. I remember pulling down and for the first time ever taking 
items off the men off a dish and being like ah, yeah we don't need that no we don't need this and i was like oh wow this is actually better now mm-hmm. uh and and getting simpler in that and then i think the other one was too was was recognizing what the beer or even in that case it also pushed me into when we were doing things with wine or spirits as well too if i if it was out of my comfort zone that's when i decided to start surrounding myself with the people who had different experiences and at that point in time in Vail, i had a sous chef who had a lot of of um asian um, or I guess Asian fusion at that point in time still uh, background in his resume and so when something like that happened I'd try to look to him to like hey what what flavors do we need to bring into this and so there from there I started to learn how to work with some of those flavors and use soy instead of salt uh, how to work tofu into things how to work uh, a lot of those cooking techniques in to, to get uh, a difference in there and also to work with some things just raw yeah so let's talk about the beer side of it. Yeah. How do you go about tasting the beer and what you know, tasting notes are there? Um, for me, tasting a beer is about a, a, a memory. And then I look, and that's how I've started to run a, a, when I do tastings for menu development or with people who are trying to look to do it. Um, because I feel that if you say the word lemon, then everyone gets stuck on the word lemon. Or if you say the word pepper, everyone gets stuck on pepper. And to be honest, if you think about it long enough, your palate will eventually taste it. Um, or you'll say your palate does. But if you think about a memory uh, or, or something like that, then you translate into what you want to have with that memory. Like the first time I had the, the uh, coal shoot reminded me of what I wanted when I was fishing uh, on the river in the summer and it was like 95 degrees and my legs were cold and everything else was hot. And I was like, okay, I want a culture right now. It's like, okay, well, what did I want when I was done fishing? Then? Mm-hmm. And then you th- and then it kind of moves into that. And that, to me, is how you kind of start to push out into finding new pairings that work as opposed to saying, oh, I get lemon in this. And do you pair that with fish? <laughs> um, actually, I did I did that with fish, but we also moved away with a, with a few other things that I never would have probably thought about had I, had I not thought about that as well, too, because... They did think about that with fish, but then also, oddly, you know, when you're fishing, you think of things like ham sandwiches. Um, you think of, like, cheeses uh, that you just can, you know, have on there. Um, and you think of things that like, you can just take with you on the river to eat. I know I'm jumping forwards, but GABF is such a big part of your life now. Yeah. And talk about walking around a place with a lot of drinking experience. <laughs> Explain yeah. to me what GABF is and how you got involved and how it's changed the beer community. Um, so it's the Great American Beer Festival. Um, it is uh, put on by the Brewers Association. It's been in Denver for 32 years now. Um, it, uh, it is the single largest beer festival in the country. Uh, and it's brewers that come in that pour their beers to people who walk around and, and want to taste them and, and interact with the beer and really celebrate where beer is going. And the growth of it is massive. Um, I got involved with it six years ago, um, basically due to the expansion of it. What ended up happening, um, I was living in Colorado at the time that this happened, and what ended up happening is the, the GABF expanded in the convention center where, it's, where it was being held at. And with the expansion of it, they acquired this room that's on the back of the convention center that you know, kind of looks like a really nice airport lobby, I guess, would be the way to say it for a convention center. But it's not on the main floor. It's quiet. It has windows that look out to the Rocky Mountains. It has a huge patio on it. And uh, the Brewers Association wanted to do something different with this room. 
they, they wanted to push forward what was happening in the movement with craft beer at this time. And so we, we sat around in a room kind of batting around ideas out. And at this point in time, this is when the farm to table movement was just exploding in, in restaurants. You know, everyone was wanting to find out what farm to table was and, and who, what chefs were doing farm to table. And, you know, now it becomes an, an overused term now, but at that time it was just hitting its stride. And so thought about the idea of taking craft brewers uh, who were uh, supporting their local community um, and doing as much as they could in their own area there, also independently owned, um, and matching them with a chef and saying, take two beers, have the chef create two dishes, and we're going to have people walk around and try the food uh, and the pairings. Um, Very first year we did it. Uh, we thought it was going to go off gangbusters and, and be huge. And instead, we literally had 15 people out on the main floor begging people to come back there, giving them tickets for it, being like, no, you need to come back and check this out. And people were like, no. You know, the main floor of the Great American Beer Festival is loud, boisterous. You can pretty, you know, you can pretty much cross off the veritable bingo card of seeing people dressed up, um, poor choice outfits, um, pretzel necklaces, pretzel necklaces, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, public drunkenness. You know, I mean, just this, the the amount of stuff that goes on out there, and it's it's people watching. Yeah. Well, how many breweries and how many beers are there, and how how do people taste through? So the first year there were, I think eight or ten um and now we're up to now we're doing 12 oh i i don't even mean just for the tasting i mean for oh gavf yeah. just so people understand the scope, Ooh, of, scope it. of it um man it was close to four thousand beers this year uh and i believe there was close to 600 breweries that were on the floor um and or entered their beer into the competition so then well, let's talk about competition, too, because it's not just every beer. Right. It's selected specifically. Yeah, I mean, it's every brewery selects the beers that they want in that because they enter them in the competition. Um, the, the other side of the Great American Beer Festival is the judging that goes into it, um, which is a massive, massive undertaking that people really don't see because the, the awards happen on Saturday morning, uh, and you know people understand what the medals are, and <clears throat> they are very, very well recognized. Uh, as far as uh, you know, the the award goes, and the the gold medal, bronze, and the brewer of the year, and the breweries of the year, uh, and that that's why the brewer, you know, other than a, a great time to go to Denver and have all these breweries interact and see each other, you you go for the competition, you go to be recognized by your peers for brewing this beer. So then, how do you make a selection? I mean, there are the metal beers, but how do you bring it back to? Back food to the side. food side, yeah. um, specifically for farm, the farm to table yep. area. Um, what we started doing for the farm to table area was we started doing a lottery um, because a lot of breweries were expressing interest. The first couple of years, it was basically going out and being like, "Will you, will you please do this?" Yeah. Um, now we're to the point where it's like, "Okay, we're at a lottery," uh, and you know, there's criteria for getting into that. Um, it needs to be craft beer first and foremost so it needs to be under those things you know the, the guidelines set where you know uh independently owned under the under the six million mark which everyone is way under that uh and they also need to be beers that aren't poured on the main floor that's now the huge key criteria is that we're pushing the breweries to you know hey if you only you know the amount of beer you need on the main floor to get through the festival is a lot of beer 
what you need to get through that back room because you're looking at uh, a smaller footprint of people is something where the brewers can really push to their one-offs or uh, something that they may only have a little bit left of or something that's not brewed on their their large scales. So what were some of those beers this year that were exclusive to the farm table? Um, So from Great Divide, it was the very last, literally last of their Oatmeal Yeti. Um, Cigar City brought their Guava Grove uh, for for a sour that was in there. Um, We had uh, a brew pub from upstate New York, uh, C.H. Evans, that brought out uh, a keg of a Pilsner to go with oysters. Um, We had uh, Victory Brewing uh, that brought in uh, kind of a a one-off quad that they'd done uh, and and poured that. And so... um, you know, and then in years past, you've had we've had uh, other breweries like Oakshire out of Portland uh, brought um, a kind of a, a test sour they've been working on, um, and it's it's nice to see them push that, and then it also pushes, and the chefs get excited about it, and the the pairing of the chefs with the brewers is is a lot of fun because so we got the pairings too, yeah, Pilsner Oyster. What were some of the other pairings from this year or in the past years? Um, so some play it safe, some push the limits. Uh, and then that's kind of one of the nice things to see. Um, you know, uh, it's, uh, there was uh, Logsdon uh, Organic Farmhouse Ales was one of the breweries this year. And they brought their uh, Saison Bretta. And, and within that, uh, the chef that they were paired with was um, for Kyle uh, Mendenhall from the kitchen in, in Denver. And he wanted to play off the sour with it, and so he made duck confit, but instead of just serving duck confit, he stuffed it inside a cherry macaroon. Um, and, you know, to see, to see somebody pushing it that, you know, yeah, does duck confit and a sour work together really well? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, when's the last time you had it with a macaroon? Yeah. Probably not the beer, nor duck confit. Um, we had, uh, let's see, um, a couple of years ago we had... Um, Mike and Pat Sheeran from uh, Trenchermen uh, out, and they were with Three Floyds, um, which anywhere they go, those guys get the lines following around. And they did a dish uh, that was um, a cuttlefish uh, pasta. Uh, and it just kind of changed what people thought, one, about cuttlefish, and then, two, the beer that it was paired with brought out the hops and a little bit of sweetness and citrus. And it, people were looking at that as something that was definitely different. Um and so it's, it's nice to see the direction that, that they'll go with that. And that's what we want is we want people to push it to a different thing. You know, don't do chocolate and stout. Don't do an IPA and some version of a slider. That's not what, that's not what that room's for back there. It was, uh, well, we'll talk about savor because there was a pairing there. I think it was Cigar City, that cucumber saison. Yeah. With a ceviche. Yep. Which was mind-blowing. Yeah, that one was. I mean, that, that you know, uh, that dish came specifically to mind because of that beer which was also mind-blowing in that and then what what other ones that it could work with and you know how you can have a beer actually act as a component to a dish but that dish has nothing of that component in it yeah uh and it just makes people stop and think gabf is in colorado yep in denver saver was in new york last year has been dc in the past yep so you have these two amazing national events with national brewers um, how do they differ? Well, Savor is, you know, really about taking it to uh, an event where the entire event is around craft beer and food pairing. Um, the Farm Table Pavilion at, at GABF is 
a little bit more of an offshoot focus point that's in there and you know to be honest it's the the sanctuary away from the large floor um and it's an individual relationship that's being built you know you're you're able to introduce 12 chefs to 12 brewers and these people start meeting each other and you kind of start to create these relationships savor is a, a little bit larger format with 74 breweries uh and then paired up to the food uh that, that goes with it there and um a, a walk around event that's a little bit you know everybody from the time it's been in dc to new york comes to that dressed from jeans and a shirt all the way up to it's a nice night out and they they have the hired car and show up just completely blinged out um and i think the big difference there too is the the service of it uh you know the, the main difference with saver is you have the brewer or uh owner of the brewery at each table pouring that beer uh there to talk about the beer there to talk about the uh, the experience um you also have that in front of a table, but in GABF, that, that experience is is coming back, but it's not necessarily uh, on the whole floor. The same are going to be back in New York. It's in D.C. It's in a traveling event. It's it's in D.C. this year, um, which was decided before going to New York just because of the D.C. was the uproar in D.C. of moving it to New York. <laughs> uh, that must so. be, feel good, though, that there was oh, absolutely. uproar. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and New York was a, a phenomenal experience for a first-time event in New York. Mm-hmm. I think it's up in the air as to what Savor becomes because we're on this cusp of what it, where is cra- where are craft beer and food going, and you know what what do craft beer and food need in the next couple of years to go forward on that? And I think part of what Savor's role in that is to is to help kind of push that out on there because what what you have from the people who come to Savor the the biggest compliments I've seen come out of Saver are not what they thought of what they had at Saver because that's that's a, a great compliment in and of itself, but that's also what that event's intended to do. The better compliment is that after they went to Saver, they went out to a restaurant and they sought out a craft beer and food pairing somewhere and they had a moment with it there. And now all of a sudden you have these people who are invested in looking into that in their communities. And you, and you look at how the D.C. area craft beer has changed in the last five years. And you have to kind of wonder, you know, okay, well, what role did Saver have in that? Well, the pairing community of, of beer and food has certainly arrived in San Francisco, and we were sitting in Abbott Cellar. Um, I met you years ago at Monk's Kettle. What have these two restaurants done for the greater good of beer and food pairings? I think it's they've they've put forward that it that one it works. Um, and that, that beer has a rightful place at the table, uh, craft beer, uh, and and that it's approachable. I think that's the biggest thing that I see right now is that people get scared off by it because you, you look at you look at craft beer versus wine, and I'm not saying versus in a competition. I'm saying just as far as approachability. Uh, you know, you say Chardonnay, you know pretty much kind of what you're going to get. You say IPA, yeah, you don't really know. And, you know, those, those two have a lot of parallels as far as for what they do. And a lot of people get scared or turned off by what they're trying because it's, they, they don't know. And they want someone to, to help make sense of what their palate's tasting and to, to learn what their palate likes. Um, you know, uh, IPA has been riding this huge, well, not just IPA, but hops have been riding this huge wave 
And a lot of people don't like it, but it's not because they don't like it. It's because they've had it in, a, in especially specifically a food pairing where they really don't like it. And they just need to be shown that, well, if you do it this way or you try this or, you know, one of the best moments we have, um, you know, uh, it's kind of a funny moment. Uh, it happens a lot over at Monk's Kettle is we have people who come in who, uh, who say, uh, I hear you have Pliny on tap. I I refer, I'm, I'm guilty of that last night. <laughs> referring, but not the next part that comes with this. Yeah. We're referring to Pliny, the elder from Russian River, and then say, yeah, we do. Well, what kind of brew do you like? And then the next sentence that's out of these people's mouths is, well, I don't like IPAs. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, uh, let's talk this through for a minute. It's then, like I'm going to Mecca, <laughs> but I, I don't like India, or I've never <laughs> been to India. It is, but it's funny. And then you actually figure it out, and they've had some bad experience with hops or with something else that was an IPA before, and then they, they get their planning, and they're like, yeah, I like this. And then you're like, you're drinking an IPA. Yeah, you're drinking one of the IPAs. And it's, it's funny to see that, and it hits that note of like, okay, how do we help people understand, well, this is this and this is this? Because that's the honest part of it too, especially now. Um, and in some parts of it, it pains me to say this, but it, it has to be said is there's a lot of really bad craft beer out there right now. And there's also a really lot of good craft beer out there right now. But that is determining a lot of people that are coming into this world of trying craft beer and trying new things. If you try one IPA and, it's com- and it turns you off from that, keep trying another one until you, fi- until you find something or someone who says this kind of is representative of this style. Again, there are so many beers out there, and I'm looking at your tasting menu right now, and I don't even know what two of the styles are, <laughs> yet alone the beers. Um, Firestone Walker, I've had their IPAs many yeah. times. And what is the Pivo? So Pivo is something that they've been working on for a while. It's a, it's a hoppy pilsner. Uh, uses the Sapphire hop, um, and it just kind of came into the, the San Francisco market a little over a year ago. Um, actually, just kind of started coming out. Um, they And it's crisp, clean, has notes of grapefruit, a little bit of pine, a little bit of citrus. Um, and it's probably, it's, it's one, one of very few beers that in all honesty has almost a permanent tap handle here at Abbott's because it is such a great gateway beer to beer and food pairing. Um, especially with some of the seasons we've been going through with right now. And so we try and always do the tasting menu where we get people in there and we start off with a beer that is, uh, representative of something that has something they can identify with but then also resonates with the food in a simple and clean way where it's like okay I, I get this um, and, and moving in a different direction you know like it, that's the thing for tonight like we've got shellfish as the first course and the easy way out would be to put that with a wit because it's classic you know pen cove mussels and manila clams tomato and pepper broth yeah, like you said, Belgian that you know you, when you get steam mussels, that, yeah. that's an expected. And, um, and this this goes in a different way, and goes with something that a lot of other people would typically think of putting with uh, a ro- you know like a roast chicken dish or with uh, salmon of some form. And yeah, that would absolutely work as well too. But it works here too. Uh, and the other thing that we work on too is is trying to teach people about their palates and that kind of key phrase that comes in in both eating and drinking of palate fatigue. You know, you still want to be tasting everything when you get to the end. The next course, ricotta gnocchi, roasted piopini. Actually, I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> roasted piopini mushrooms and uh, red curry squash. Paired with? Um, that's with a Christmas bok from uh, Mars, which is a 
brewery out of Germany, and we're starting to get into that season right now. And so this is going a different way as well, too, of going to something that's got these darker, roastier, malty flavors. Um, and this is also really funny as it goes into the next course, too, because we're reversing it. You've got a Bach, dar- um, darker, roastier. It's got some of the spice characteristics with it in there. We're really pairing that to the squash and the umami and the mushrooms. But it also works well with the, with the gentleness of ricotta cheese and, and the lightness of the gnocchi there, too. So we've been to Kekwell. We're in California, been to Germany. Next course, we travel to New York. Yeah. So halibut with a little bit of Dungeness crab. Dungeness crab season just started. Uh, Celery root puree, um, some grilled French beans, and a little bit of lemon. And this is a new beer from Omegang. It's a Belgian Independence Day is what it's called. It's actually a double wit, um, which I'll be honest, when I first saw this and we we tapped it and I was trying it, I, I went into it with a little bit of a reservation but it's an absolutely phenomenal beer for a dish like this and most people would look at this and go in you're going into a wit after having a bock this makes no sense uh but it actually keeps your palate going uh the halibut the dungeness crab the celery root all kind of help your palate stay calm there's nothing on there that's um, offensive to it and then you get all of these little flavors that come out of this this double wit uh, the citrus pulls in. You, you taste hay. You taste a little bit of uh, whether you're sure, not sure it's lemon or orange coming from the dish or from the beer. Uh, and then it has a really clean finish. Next, we go to Montreal. Yep, going to Canada. Um, love these guys up there. And this is also kind of a, a this is absolutely uh, a, a out of left field one. Uh, lemongrass panna cotta. So the bottom layer of this panna cotta is dark chocolate. Uh, the top layer is a lemon is a lemongrass infused panna cotta, just infused, you know, substitute lemongrass for vanilla bean, uh, and then a little bit of pumpkin seed on top. And this is with um, a, you know, uh, a beer called Isekai Nicho from Du de Ciel in Montreal, which is refer it's it's referred to as a black lager, but um, the easier way to refer to this is when we all tasted this, um, three people who tasted it all said the same word, which was fireplace soot as far as like a tasting reference so it's like okay and it's got a little bit of sour and it's got a little bit of smoke and so you're like okay um really really amazing thing happens with this dish and this beer is that it works on the palate in a way that instead of leaving you with a dark beer and chocolate where you would think your palate would be kind of chalky or heavy or residual at the end like you would if you finished with the stout or a porter the kind of sour hints that are in this beer actually cleanse your palate so at the end you feel your mouth watering yeah and it's also fair there's a cherry gastrique in, in yes. the dessert itself too so it's pulling ties that. pulls that sour out yeah. yeah so you you have so much fun oh yeah together. obviously from li- listening <laughs> to you explain how these experiences coalesce how they, how they develop um are there things that pair together that you never thought would pair together beer and food Oh, absolutely. Um, that happens. That happens a lot. You know, finding these, um, finding those pairings where it evokes something different out of the food or the beer, or you have this like aha moment is is kind of one of the cool things. It goes back to like that savor moment with the Cigar City and the the cucumber saison and the ceviche. Um, we've had it here with a brewery out of LA called Craftsman that makes a triple white sage, and we paired that with uh, a form of a lemon pound cake dessert, and it completely changed the beer. 
In fact, you didn't taste the sage until you were completely done. And it, it was just, it blew staff here away, people who'd had the beer before. They were just like, how'd you do that? I'm like, to be honest, I really don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it happened and it worked. Um, and, yeah, fine. I mean, craft brewers are making more styles, more interpretations, pushing the envelope more than they ever have before. And so that's, in turn, pushing the food envelope to, to different places as well, too. I want to talk about one last thing, and that's glassware, because one of the striking things when you walk into Abbott's cellar is seeing that wall. Talk to me about how important different glassware is for different beers. Uh, it's critical and key. It, it is what makes it, it can, it can be what makes it work or not work with the food pairing. You know, how, how much aroma are you letting out of it? How much are you holding in? Um, what does it do for the initial part of the uh, retention of a little bit of the, the foamy head? Um, Temperature-wise, how long does it keep the temperature of the beer? Are you intending to, to warm the beer up as it's, as it's being consumed? And getting it in that right glass always changes uh, to, to what you're doing with it. Um, and, you know, you have your classic ones of serving, you know, you have your classic standard that everybody sees of like you know a pint glass or uh, a pilsner glass or like it's kind of referred to as an, an all-purpose beer glass and those in a sense are are mid-road because they don't really do they don't highlight certain things but then they also don't pull certain things out but you have tulip forms uh, that can concentrate flavors you have snifters that can widen things out so that it hits uh, on a full frontal font uh, on the uh, sensory awareness and you have you know your classic shower shape, shaped glass which comes down to a very tight taper at the bottom so that you're you're tightening up the carbonation level of it and you're concentrating that sour aroma to hit the guest at just the right spot a little more about glassware because do you ever change the concept of what beer should go in what glass yes yeah um, and that's kind of, you know, again, of what, what you want to evoke. If you want to calm something down, you spread out its surface area. Um, if you want to intensify something up, you reduce its surface area. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, uh, you can do, you can, the easiest one to say that with is to do that with, um, you know, IPAs, double IPAs, things like that. Um, and depending on how you want the hops to interact and the malt to interact uh, and how much release you give it to. Same thing with porters and stouts. Um, you can put them in a snifter and all of a sudden they warm up faster and you get a calmer, roastier, you know, almost fireside chat-ish vision of people having that there. Or you can put it in a smaller tulip-shaped glass and it's colder for longer and more crisp. So I want to play a little, little game. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a scene and you tell me what beer you'd drink oh, at you? that time. Okay. <laughs> so I already know what you're going to drink while fishing okay. on the lake. Um, brown bag walking down the street on Valencia. <laughs> um, <clears throat> funny enough, that was last night. <laughs> that was a can of Dale's Pale Ale. <laughs> For any specific reason, or is it just transportability? Or um, transportability in a can? Yeah, yeah, that was little, yeah, um, and also it was it was what was in the fridge at home at the time. <laughs> B-Y-O-B, uh, Backyard Friends Barbecue. Um, let's see. Um, uh, probably a Saison uh, or Farmhouse Ale. Uh, something from Jolly Pumpkin or, um, or with uh, Prairie Farmhouse right now. Housewarming gift. Um, aged Stout. 
Um, baby shower. Uh, beard of champagne. <laughs> that's a that's a very good one. Um, wedding. Um, I can't use that one again. Um, let's see. Um, wedding kind of tends to go more comical uh, for me on that one, um, and go to something that's that's referenced to that. So like a vintage beer or something like that. I think you know. Uh, something like night you know birthday suit or something like that where it comes out and a unique name like that um or uh in some cases if it's going really for the humor you go for a sour and lastly what's in your fridge right now beer wise um beer wise uh in the fridge right now is actually um quite a bit um i know where i'm coming tonight <laughs> yeah, right? drink through your fridge um Brought, brought a couple things back from Denver with me from GABF that are still in there. So one remaining we'll have to drink soon, Great Divide Fresh Hop. Um, there's some cans of Ballast Point Sculpin in there. There's uh, there, uh, from uh, last trip out to New York, there's still um, a uh, couple of uh, beers from Brooklyn Brewery in there that I'm just kind of saving on to for a little bit to see when's going to be right to, to pull those out. Um there's a Boulevard Coffee Ale. There's also a Love Child, uh, a, uh, a Love Child Number Three in there from them as well too for a little bit of sour. Um, and that's gosh, what else? Oh, there's also I just put it in the fridge now. There's a there's a uh, Phantom de Noel from several years ago. Getting that ready to drink for a little holiday something. So I was going to end on that, but then you brought up this point of aging or ageability, um, and that the Great Divide Fresh Hop has to be drank soon yeah like brian's probably like if he heard if he hears this he's probably like damn it drink it so there are beers that can sell her in a sense and then there are beers that have an immediacy to them yeah it's funny too because it's a great misconception of that too because hops are actually a preservative but when you but they also fade fast um, when you age beers that are hopped the hop flavor disappears um, in some cases, that's desirable, and you and you want that to come around. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, there's there's a lot of beers that completely change, and especially now with the sours coming around and things like that, and people learning about Britannomyces, and that Brett is a is in beer has an off and on cycle, basically every other year. It's like you can drink a beer with Britannomyces that's completely on one time, one one month, and then you try it three months later, and it's completely off. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, beer is certainly doesn't even have an off cycle right now it's on yeah it's so on that it's it's so exciting and engaging right now but where do you see it next year in the next five years hopefully increasing its play um into um you know not necessarily using the word fine dining because that's you know that's a smaller definition now but into the into this area where you have chefs or cooks cooking food that uh, is true to the, the places that it comes from and has uh, the um, the characteristics that, that match with the beer and seeing people who are in these restaurants add to their beer lists, you know, uh, with seeing where you have, you know, people who are in restaurants that are getting two or three or four or whatever it is on their star system there or named chefs or they have that following going or they're just flat out doing something that's sustainable and working with all the products around them and they're reaching out to these brewers that are around them and and celebrating and championing the beer that they serve there so hopefully that continues to grow uh hopefully more relationships start to come out of it as well too uh within both the chef community and also the brewing community